Good morning, Mark, and welcome to the Low Carb Paleo Show. Glad to be with you, Alan and Mark. Good morning to both of you. Good morning to you both as well. I hope you are both suitably well. Mm. I didn't put my suit on, but I am suitably well. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, um, Mark in America, so to speak, your friend and colleague and podcast partner, John Bagnulo, which has been on the show already, suggested mm. we talk to you and uh, thank you for coming on the show. My um, pleasure. A quick presentation, uh, you are a board certified internist, nephrologist, and integrative medicine physician. You're also the director of medical education, wellness, and population health at Berkshire Health System. You can tell from all the certificates on the, on the wall hmm. behind you. <laughs> yes. So... Um, Talking about your background, how did you come to do what you're doing now and what was your defining moment? It's been an interesting journey, Alan. I, as you mentioned, my original training is in nephrology, kidney specialty. And kidney specialists tend to take care of really sick people, people that require dialysis because their kidneys are failing. And often they have many health issues, high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol, heart disease, et cetera. And about 15 years ago, both my parents developed kidney failure. It was just a, a horrible coincidence. And uh, I had an epiphany at that time in my life, Alan, that most of what con my parents confronted, and there was a great deal of suffering involved, could have been prevented. And it sent me on a journey of, of, of gaining a better understanding of nutrition and lifestyle, uh, which led to more training in integrative medicine and um, has totally transformed the way I care for myself and, and the way that I serve others. Right. So you, you still have one foot in the traditional Western style medicine, but you're also uh, more of a um, sort of alternative medicine as well? Exactly, Alan. And I, and I do straddle those worlds. Uh, much of my professional life is steeped in academic uh, educational models that mm -hmm. practice very traditional approaches to care. And uh, the other half, very much outside of that, focusing on lifestyle. But, but one of the things that I am seeing now, Alan, certainly in America, though the pace of change is slow, mm -hmm is that those worlds are coming together more and more. So um, there's, there's much more convergence of the integrative with the traditional uh, and in population health um, uh, that's very relevant because ultimately it's all about helping people care for themselves in a more effective right. way. Yeah, yeah. So, and you are the perfect person to do that because you are, um, you know, steeped in the traditional style of medicine. Do you, so do you integrate um, nutrition and all these uh, quote-unquote alternative ways into your traditional treatments uh, or do you recommend uh, or do you keep those two separate like you have, uh, you know, what you do in the hospital and uh, what you do in your private practice? They are very much overlapped and, and much more congruent now, Alan, uh, and, that, and that continues to be the case with each passing month. So most of our community programs in diabetes and helping people lose weight 
are translations of the nutritional science and mind-body science, uh, uh, things that would have been more peripheral a few years ago are now very central to all of that. So uh, there's a great deal of overlap now. So it's not considered as woo-woo kind of thing anymore. <laughs> not as not as much, uh, though. Though I have to say, it. I've been in this health system, Berkshire Health Systems, now for almost thirty years, so it does help to have some relationship capital. Uh, other physicians look at me and have a kind of an understanding of where I've been and where I'm at, and it and it makes it makes the sell, if you will, a, a bit easier. Right, right, and, and you know the interesting, of course. Uh, what you and I know is uh, um, most of what you're dealing with in your professional environment could be fairly easily controlled through diet and, and lifestyle changes, right? Absolutely, Alan. And I think that's really where the rubber meets the road. We know that, you know, almost 80% of all chronic complex health issues are lifestyle related. And, and even if physicians have an interest in that, often they don't have much time to spend with people or the resources they need to help others in those domains of their lives. So uh, this has never been more important than it is right now. So typically in your, in your daily practice, you tend to come towards the end of the problem when it's already, maybe not too late, but uh, so how do you combine the preventative part? Do you, do you catch the clients or your patients before it's too late? Are you able to fix that or help them? Really, the, the, uh, the continuum varies from people who are at risk and have an enormous opportunity for preventing diseases in their future to the other end of the continuum where I'll see people who have quite advanced chronic complex disease. But as I like to share with folks, no matter where somebody is on that continuum of their health, there are always tremendous opportunities. And, and for people who have more advanced disease, even if one is beyond the point of reversibility, there's a great deal one can do to manage how that disease is disrupting a person's life uh, and the opportunities are great there as well. So uh, it's always nice when you can catch someone more upstream, but uh, this is a model that can impact anyone no matter where they're at on that continuum. Are you, um, do you have some time to, to like to be able to reverse certain, you know, through diet and so on? It's, a, it's an interesting question, Alan, because the R word uh, in American medicine is not one that is used that often. Uh, and when, when your models of understanding and education are such that a disease, once it occurs, is just part of who you are, you're less likely to think of it in terms of reversibility. I think most of the research now uh, is very clear that many health issues, particularly uh, pre-diabetes, a person who is at risk of diabetes, and in America, that's almost one out of three adults, wow. and, people who, and people who have actual type 2 diabetes, uh, there's a lot of interesting research to suggest that you can reverse those diseases. Oh, uh, and I think, and I think we're going to learn that, that most chronic complex diseases have profound capacity for reversal, at least to some extent, no matter where a person is at and their experience of that of that disease process. Yeah, case in point there is is my dad. I mean, he's he's been um, diagnosed with diabetes for ten or fifteen years, and um, 
back in March he had a stroke. And because of that, I've been uh, looking after him. Um, while he was in hospital, the dietitian said, uh, you know, you need to go on a low-carb diet, which was a shock to me. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, I know a little bit about low-carb diets. So uh, as, he's, as he's living with me, um, I put him on a low-carb diet. So he's now off of insulin and uh, he's been off of his um, glycoside as well for about four months. And uh, he's got to the point now where the doctors are saying, well, we don't think we need to monitor you for diabetes anymore. So it can be reversed. It can great. be reversed, yeah. And mm. that's been my experience, Mark, uh, for countless numbers of, of people that I've worked with. Mm. Yeah, I find it uh, shameful that in, uh, once you're into the medical system, they seem to assume that once you have a certain uh, condition or sickness, uh, that's it. That's the end. All we can do is do, uh, you know, uh, pharmaceutical and, and, and surgery and this and that. That's typically the approach. Um, my, yeah, uh, dad, my dad died of cancer, and one of my fights is to... Uh, survive or to reverse the potential for cancer that some people say well if your parent died of cancer you're gonna die of cancer right well with epigenetics now we 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 can confirm that you can control to a certain extent you can control the behavior of your cells and if uh, it doesn't mean because one of your parents died of cancer then you're gonna catch it so uh, I do believe very strongly in preventative, uh, not just medicine, but um, you know, eating healthy, behavior, exercise, so on and so forth. And in, in this case, um, you know, Mark's dad is a very good example. We can reverse certain conditions. It's not easy. And most of the time, unfortunately, when the patient comes to us, whether me as a you know, nutritionist consultant, is in a lot of cases too late, or it's your life's resort. They come to you first, they come to the regular medicine, and if the regular medicine is, well, there's nothing we can do, then they come to me because somehow they think, and in a, in a few cases I've been able to help, uh, but it's difficult to convince a patient to change their habits. It's very difficult. Uh, have you seen that too? I, I have absolutely seen that, uh, Alan. You brought up something that really jumped out at me, and I think it's so fundamental. And one of the reasons that many people tend to resist the possibility of change is this field of epigenetics. I, I find that many, uh, certainly many physicians in America still, and many people that we serve are under the impression that most of the health issues they confront are largely genetically driven. And the mindset is, these are cards that I inherited. There's not a whole lot I can do to uh, change the cards that I'm holding. And uh, fortunately, I, I have things that I can take in the, in the form of, of pharmaceuticals. So I do think that this revolution of biology and our understanding that all aspects of lifestyle and the environments that we are in fundamentally shift throughout our lives uh, is, is 
crucially important. And so a lot of what I try to do as a practitioner is to understand the perceptions that guide the behaviors of those that I serve uh, and to try to transform those behaviors. And consistently, uh, one area of opportunity there is helping people realize that it's not genetically locked in, that one of the reasons their mother or father had it is because they confronted the same environmental conditions. They ate the same foods. They moved the same way. They had the same stressors in their lives. So what they inherited were not so much fixed genetic predeterminants. They inherited social and environmental conditions that set the stage. And, and people are capable of understanding that. And once I can help a person begin to appreciate how malleable uh, we are as human beings uh, and how quickly they can begin to experience change in their lives, uh, you begin to see that, that shift. And, and I think that's critical. Right. One thing that we've known for a long time, I believe, is that our cells regenerate all the time. It makes sense that if we generate constantly new cells, why not make these new cells healthy cells? you know, and guide them to, to, to be healthy. So I, I don't see, uh, you, know, uh, you know, so far, knock on wood, I'm healthy, but um, I don't see that any um, lifestyle type of illnesses are definitive. And I, I totally agree with that. Alan, and, and I can tell you early on in my career, that was not my perception. And that's part of, of what the transformation for me as a caregiver has been. Part of that challenge as caregivers and as people who are looking to find a better way to care for themselves requires unlearning, uh, transforming some of the perceptions that have, have guided them. Uh, and, and as we've been reflecting, I try to help I think experience is the best teacher. So I try to help people create experiences in their lives that they can begin to notice in a relatively short time. They may change the way they're eating. They may change the way they're moving. They may change the way they are interpreting and responding to stressors in their lives. And I know and I can share with them confidently that in a relatively short time, their experience of life is going to begin to shift. And that I find is the most powerful lever to begin to nudge someone in the direction of changing the way they care for themselves. Right. There's a couple of side issues that um, I'd like to address. One of them is that it seems that the system has brainwashed people into believing that the doctors, you know, uh, I could do whatever, the doctors will fix me. You know, it's like they're giving up their um, control over their own health and giving it away to doctors and, and such. Um, I completely disagree with that, you know. We should yes. be in We are, this is our body. We should be in charge of it and we should control not only the way we handle it and the way we care for it, but also how we work with the doctors to get better. I Have think they're giving that? up. I'm sorry, go ahead. I think they're giving up common sense as well, Alan. Right, right. But it's also part of it is brainwashing is in the sense that 
oh, yeah. are the we are the doctors and you don't you know nothing and we're gonna tell you what to do so give away all your power we'll take care of you and the the american healthcare system uh alan is perfectly designed to produce the results that we currently see mm. which is some of the sickest human beings that have ever yeah. walked this planet and and so i couldn't agree more with what you say there has been this tendency to believe that the doctor will fix me when i'm broken and mm. that, that there is nothing empowering uh, or true uh, in that in that ideology and yet it's still quite pervasive i i do find there's a bit of a generational shift uh, certainly in the united states where uh, the younger generations are much less willing to relinquish uh, the control they have over their lives. They're much more skeptical. They right. question more. Uh, and that, that gives me hope uh, in terms of, of, of sort of moving beyond that mindset, which has been so right. um, pervasive. Mm. Yes, another behavior that I notice, which is um, maybe not entirely medical, more psychological, is some people actually think their disease defines them. It's like they own their yeah. disease. Yeah, they yeah, become yeah. their disease. They, that's all they talk about is their disease. I have a couple of friends like this. Every time we, we meet, it's like, oh, I've, you know, I have this, I have that, and I didn't, you know. And it's always about their sickness. Uh, how do you explain that? That's another great observation, and, and I see that all the time. People will tell me, I'm a diabetic. Mm. I'm a I'm a hypertensive, uh, and 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 it speaks it speaks to this critical issue of mindset. How are the interpretation and response to the experiences of our lives begin to define how we perceive ourselves? Uh, and so, um, I think part of this 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 revolution, if I could if I could suggest it to be that, uh, is a need to help people realize that they're human beings with infinite possibility and the conditions that they confront in, our, in their lives are consequences of the relationship between who they are uh, and the choices that they, that they make. Uh, and that's, a, that's a, 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 a liberating, empowering position to take. But at the same time, um, Alan, there's a challenge there. Uh, a person is then forced to look into the mirror and say, wow, uh, perhaps I'm not who I thought I was. Uh, and as a consequence, I need to assume more responsibility for the choices I make. That can yeah. be a very unsettling place for people to be, and yet it's, it's profoundly empowering. But those are, you touched on what I believe to be cultural memes. Uh, I'm a disease. It's genetic. I can't do anything about it. Mm. Uh, the doctor and the hospitals are there to fix me. From a population health perspective, uh, those are the worst ideologies to in any way promote or liberate the health potential that people mm. have. Yeah. Right. But on the other side of the coin, do you find uh, doctors or maybe younger doctors more willing to actually discuss and communicate with their clients or, or involve their clients with the, the whole process? I think there are more and more physicians that desire to, to have those conversations, Alan. At the same time, they confront a growing disconnect between the values that they embody 
and the model of care that they practice in, which gives mm. them so little time to explore those issues. Uh, they're incentivized to see lots of people and to do lots of things. So what I see now is mm. a growing uh, crisis of value conflict between that which caregivers embody and that which they actually experience in the context of the work that they do. And it's very frustrating for them. So right. I, I think more want to have those conversations. Uh, and, and there are some, even for those that maybe haven't learned a lot about nutrition, for example, rarely do I confront a colleague, and I love my colleagues. They're, they're, you know, they're, they're my brothers and sisters who aren't confronting some health issue in their own lives or confronting burnout. And so I try to help them look at their own lives as examples of opportunities for them to transform the way they think about care. And that can be a, another powerful lever to shift the way they think about how they engage those that they serve. Mm. It's yeah, challenging. Yeah. Yeah. Right, absolutely. And uh, regarding the uh, pressure put on the doctors, uh, let's be honest about it. Uh, in this country at least, uh, healthcare is a huge business. And it's a lot about money. Mm. It's not necessarily about taking care of people. Uh, you, there's a sh there's a difference in Europe. I don't know about in England, but in France, there's there seems to be more of a taking care of the customer or taking care of the patient more than making money. And uh, I don't know if it's a general. I think it's a general uh, European way of looking at it. Uh, the system there is very socialized, so their advantage is to heal people faster and get them out of a system instead of dragging it out and making more money out of them. Mm. What's your take on that? Well, I think the American healthcare system could learn a lot from what's happening in other countries and could learn a lot about what's happening in other industries that are much more sort of service oriented, if you will. Uh, you know, we spent $3.6 trillion in the American healthcare system last year. And it's estimated that over a third of that is essentially squandered for things that do not prolong life or enhance the quality of life. Mm. Uh, and so the, when you look at the effect that the market has, you know, 18, 19% of our gross domestic product largely going to pharmaceuticals, largely going to, to biomedical interventions. It's the perfect design to create profit motive and even well-intentioned people. Um, it, it's very hard to achieve the outcome of empowerment when that is going to risk people taking fewer medicines, people requiring fewer surgeries and operate all the things that have generated profit are now um, in conflict with a system that can no longer afford to care for the people that it, that it serves. So there are very uh, pernicious uh, conflicts at play that are powerful and, and influence how we, how we govern in, in America and probably true in other, other countries as well. Mm. I hear that um, more and more doctors are quitting the traditional, so to speak, uh, because it's not that, you know, it's really the last couple of generation. Because in the old days, there was more of a sense of taking care of your, you know, your family doctors, they would come and see you and so on and so forth. So there was more of a caring type of personality, but it's turned into a huge business. 
But I, I hear that more and more doctors are sh moving out of that and establishing um, either they're moving into the more alternative or they establish their own um, private uh, um, business that would take better care and will give them or they will take the time to actually talk mm -hmm. to people instead of having 10 minutes you know, with the clipboard, looking at a clipboard, and then boom, you know, they're gone. Okay. Uh, what, what's your, are you seeing this shift as well? I'm definitely seeing that shift more and more with each passing year, Alan. And there are a couple of shifts that I see. One is in the category that you describe, physicians that can no longer feel satisfied with their inability to serve in ways that they would like to serve. So they are uh, uh, divorce themselves, if you will, from the more traditional insurance model here in America. And they focus on practices where they can spend more time with individuals, focus more on lifestyle. Uh, and there does tend to be more of a, a cash exchange as a, opposed to a third party insurance e exchange. And more and more physicians are doing that. And I totally understand that. The other trend that I see, uh, Alan, is that I have a lot of colleagues that are uh, expediting their decision to retire because they're, they're on that part of their career where it's simply no longer worth it for them mm. to be seeing 30 people a day, to be spending hours on the computer, doing all of their electronic documentation, things that have nothing to do with the direct relationship or compassion of caring for others. So I'm seeing a lot of physicians choosing to retire at younger ages than they would have otherwise. And, and I think these have huge implications for, for workforce needs uh, and for how future physicians uh, look at their care. And that's the third thing that I see, Alan. I work a lot with young residents who are training, they've not yet gone into practice. Many of them don't want to go into primary care, family medicine, pediatrics, because they see how crazy that model is and, and, how, and how ineffective it, it mm. can be. And they're choosing careers that tend to be more procedurally oriented. It, it feeds this, uh, this model of doing things. And, and so I think there are issues for young doctors uh, for doctors that are in the prime of their practices that are finding another way to do what they do and those on the tail end of their practices that are choosing to retire at a time in their lives when they have more wisdom than ever. Uh, and there's something sad and tragic about that. Yeah. Yeah. The thing, the, the problem I see with that is um, I, I, I think it's a great thing for them to shift away from that. The problem is the system does not support that. Um, it, it's all, um, geared towards, uh, you know, insurance paperwork and, and being reimbursed, yeah. whereby um, the one that try to get out of that system are forcing, you know, cash payment or credit cards or whatever, uh, which kind of uh, forced sort of like... Um, put away or pushes away the people that can't afford to pay cash. Yes. Mm. You know, uh, I mean, even in my situation, and I'm not that expensive, but a lot of people, when I tell them, you know, uh, it's $150 for the first consultation or first meeting, 
and they look at me, well, my insurance is not going to pay for that. So, sorry, I mean, I don't take insurance and, and, uh, and I lose customers that way. So I'm seeing that um, although it, it is a great shift, I also see the fact that people that can't afford this kind of medicine will go f more towards that and get more personalized medicine. And the rest of the people that can't afford that, they still be stuck in the, the traditional system of insurance and all the nightmares that goes with it. Yes, that's a big issue, Alan. And there is a bit of a paradox. Uh, in America, for example, we know that, and this is true all over the world, but, but in America and where I serve, people with fewer resources, we know, are at much greater risk of chronic complex disease. When you look at the social determinants of health, your health literacy, how educated you are, how your financial resources, your social networks of loving, loving friends, um, people in those lower socioeconomic strata have much worse health outcomes, a much higher prevalence of substance use. And, and those folks are locked in to this system. There's no way they could, they could see someone like yourself or you know, uh, many of my colleagues who do amazing work in a, in, a, in a different model of care. So those that need it most are least likely to have access to it. And, uh, you know, until we, we gut our system and rebuild it from the ground up, uh, I, you know, I think that's going to continue to be an enormous paradox. Yeah, thank you, and I will be long gone before that happens, unless there's, <laughs> unless yeah. there's some, yeah. some kind of revolution that happens, yeah. but or complete, you know, um, what I hear also, and uh, it, on one hand, it's a great shift, but it also brings us back to the same problem, which is doctors are so sick and tired of filling paperwork all day long, mm. they decide to go and into a, a system that is more personal. You're basically, you pay a certain fee per month, and you have complete access to your doctor, literally 24 hours a day. Mm. And... Yes. Um, and it's more personalized. They actually come to your house. They, they do home visits and so on and so forth. Um, it's very intriguing. But again, it tends to target the, the richer population because yeah. they can afford to do that. But on the other hand, if you look at Obamacare uh, or ACA, uh, you see that people are paying higher and higher premiums every year. I mean, my premiums have been going up every year. And to get what? So, in a way, I would say I'd rather pay directly a doctor to take care of me more personally than yeah. paying into the system that most likely, if I have a grave disease, will say, well, sorry, we don't cover that, or it's not part of your plan, or whatever. So, this whole um, system is really not, um, to me, you know, again, I'm coming from a different uh, point of view from from France is not very efficient it's um, and it certainly it doesn't seem to take good care of the, the patients or the people well I, I couldn't agree with you more and uh, the model you describe is a model that I would desire as a uh, uh, you know someone in need of care and I think uh, Americans certainly have higher deductibles they have more co-pays so much of those costs are being shifted to the consumer. And 
what, what consumers need are more cost-efficient ways to, to care for themselves because as, as, as we all know, as I'm sure the listeners of, of your, your podcast know, healthy living doesn't happen in doctor's offices, right? Healthy living yeah. doesn't happen in hospitals. Healthy living and the road to healthy living is paved by the choices we make, how we eat and how we move and mm. how we love. Uh, and there are inexpensive ways to do that. Uh, right. But we, you know, we just, uh, this model just can't, can't get us there. Right, right. Uh, I'm going to share a typical experience. Uh, when I try to put my clients on a healthy diet, and the first, almost every time, not all the time, but the first reaction, oh, uh, you know, healthy food is so expensive. And I say, wait a minute, wouldn't you rather spend a little bit more money for food that is going to keep you healthy and taste great? right? Instead of paying lots of money to doctors, hospitals, and medicines later on. I mean, the choice is pretty clear to me. I'd rather stay healthy and eat good, tasty food than to get sick and miserable and having to pay all these uh, thousands of dollars to the system. Great. And I, I hear that all the time, Alan. I, I think there's a tendency for people to be most concerned about the short term. You know, what is it going to cost me today or tomorrow or this week or this month? Rarely are they looking at this in terms of their, of their lifespan, their health span. Uh, it's so much less expensive to pay a little bit more for the food that you eat uh, than for all the co-pays yeah, and the yeah. emergency room visits and the medications. Uh, I, I think that's intuitive, but, but people are so locked into short-term thinking that that's, I, I find that always an intuitive case to make. Hmm. Right. The, the, the truth is people take better care of their cars than they take care of themselves. Yeah, right. Go figure. Right? Yeah. Hmm. Oil change every three months or 3,000 miles and, you know, regular maintenance. And, yes. Uh, uh, and, and yet, so maybe we should design some kind of a plan, a similar plan and say, okay, every... Um, Every three months, you have to go to the doctor and get a checkup, or every year you need to do a complete physical and, and make it mandatory, so to speak. Although the oil change is not mandatory, but it's so, <laughs> it's so yeah. ingrained into, uh, you know, the, this, this is the way they, they get you to come back to the oil change all the time. But it's like, oh, you have to do it uh, every 2,000 miles, otherwise your car is going to break down. Well, if we um, use the same analogy to clients and say, well, if you don't come and do, uh, you know, a, a quick checkup every three months, your, your body is going to break down. So, mm -hmm. right? Indeed. All right. Totally so moving, moving along, <laughs> you are the author of two books, The Savvy Patient, The Ultimate Advocate for Quality Healthcare, and it's all in your head, change your mind, change your health. Can you, what can you tell us about your books? The Savvy Patient I wrote in, uh, I believe it was 2004, uh, Alan, and it's really a resource book intended to help uh, consumers, people, uh, to have a better understanding of the healthcare system and how it works and how through that understanding they can uh, – uh, develop ways of navigating more easily uh, and, and with less, um, uh, you know, conflict and, and less uh, energy. So uh, there are a, an array of topics from how to prepare for an office visit, 
uh, what kind of questions might you want to consider uh, in advance of a visit, uh, what alternatives might there be to a trip to the emergency department, um, how do you support a loved one who's in the hospital? Mm. How do you how do you um, uh, how do you think about your advanced directives as we refer to them in the United States? That might be a living will. It might be a healthcare proxy. Um, how do you how do you talk about death? How do you how do you think about your mortality in a way that can perhaps reduce the suffering that someone might otherwise have at the end of their lives? Um, so it's an array of topics. It's more of a, of a resource book. Uh, and I share a lot of my own personal experiences as I was a caregiver for my, my parents in an effort to connect in a way that's both personal and, and professional yeah. uh, with the reader. Uh, the second book, the, the It's All in Your Head, uh, I wrote a few years later. I'm very interested in this uh, burgeoning area of the neurosciences and neuroplasticity and behaviors, the sort of the biology of behavior, and how uh, people could begin to think about simple strategies in their lives that could ignite a neurobiologic pattern that could make more likely the next choice will serve them better than the previous one. Uh, and so it's uh, an attempt to extrapolate the neurosciences in a day-to-day -day pragmatic way mm. Uh, to give people more traction in their lives. You know what? I think I'm gonna I'm gonna offer to exchange one of my books with the savvy patient. That sounds really interesting. Great. Um, I'm making notes right now. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, very interesting. Um, definitely um, gonna ask you that. So um, now I have a three quick, a tricky question for you. What diet are you following? So, as uh, coincident would have it, currently I'm on a, a low-carb paleo lifestyle and, and have been on that for a few years now, Alan. I, I would, the, the footnote I would add to the paleo is I do occasionally have dairy. That, that, that comes in the form of heavy cream or whipping cream that I, that, I, that I will occasionally put in a cup of coffee. I might on occasion have a, a legume or a black bean, but for the most part, I've been low-carb paleo, and it's totally changed my life. And many of the genetics that I inherited from my parents, <laughs> right, to the, to the original point that you made, epigenetically, I have reprogrammed my cell biology. And uh, um, so that, that I've experienced that. And uh, this is a, a plan that has worked really well for me. And I often right. recommend it to others. I'm, I'm on a similar kind of plan. It's more of a primal. Uh, I, I, I love cheese. I'm French. I can't help it. Right? It's uh -huh. in my blood. So I do eat cheese once in a while. It's not, it's not like I have it in my refrigerator. It's if I go to a social event, then I'll, I'll eat the whole uh, cheese tray just by myself. Um, and as far as legumes, uh, I found that once in a while I need to uh, eat some lentils to help my digestive system, if you know what I mean. Yes. Um, and, but, um, you know, I would say that I'm typically 90% paleo at this point or, or primal. Yes. So, um, what made you decide to, uh, to switch to this diet? Well, I had tried various things. I was vegetarian in the past for some time. And, uh, I certainly did the low fat Ornish type program for some time. And, uh, 
Uh, I've been a very assertive uh, uh, biohacker. I, I have tracked my labs along the way. I, I'm very mindful of how I feel at any given time and uh, really hit, hit a low point uh, back when I was vegetarian. And as I started to bring uh, in another iteration of, of changing lifestyle, when I began to look at paleo, look at a lot of the research that I was very interested in, it was very intuitive, very rational. The research was, was abundant. Uh, and as I began to make that shift, I experienced immediate change. And, you know, the more you do, the more you do uh, when, when you're feeling better as a consequence. So, um, right. and I, so I've been there for, for some time. Right, right. And we're not, uh, today we'll, we'll be nice. We won't uh, say bad things about vegans. No. <laughs> no. We'll not do that. Uh, so, um, and I don't know how you do all these things, writing books and uh, keeping a busy practice. And on top of that, you have a podcast, The Health Age, uh, Edge, I'm sorry, The Health Edge. Yes. My, excuse my French accent. With your partner, John Bagnulo. Um what do you talk about on your show? Uh, is it kind of all over the place, or do you are you specific uh, targeted towards certain subjects? The the Health Edge uh, has been a great collaborative with uh, my my colleague, as you know, John Bagnulo, who's a nutritional scientist, also has a master's in public health, an extraordinary human being. Uh, we really focus on an ancestral lens. We look at health from the perspective of ancestral alignment. And John and I are both cell biology geeks, so we, we, we focus on a wide array of topics. We take a deep dive. Uh, we, we try to stay true to the rigor of the research that's out there. But, you know, we also adapt to the science as it adapts. And so it's really a deep dive, uh, a translation, if you will, of the research that's out there that can uh, help give people more traction in their lives. It's, it's a lot of fun. And I have found, compared to writing books, uh, that podcast uh, can allow you to reach a large number of people in a very effective way uh, with a little less uh, energy consumption that writing a book has. So it's been a nice yeah. platform for us. It does take time to write a book, that's for sure. Um, you uh, recently went to speak at the 2018 Physicians for Ancestral Health Conference in yes. San Diego. What was your talk about? So my talk was on the relationship between epigenetics, lifestyle, and population health. All of the things that we've been uh, sharing in this discussion, Alan, right. and nothing like being around a group of like-minded professionals, all of whom have had remarkable personal journeys, and all of whom are continuing to explore ways to translate those journeys into the work that they do, amazing mm -hmm. work across many disciplines and in many different clinical settings. So it was a fabulous conference uh, and uh, a good tribe to be a member of. So you f you, you're finding that physicians are starting to pay attention to diet as a, and, and lifestyle, obviously, uh, more and more than they used to? I think so. I think there's an acceleration of interest. As the science explodes, I think as more caregivers find themselves inherently frustrated with their inability to transform the health of others, looking for, for other ways, I, I think this is really catching on and, and exploding. Right. I, I can see where there would be much more of an um, emotional and um, spiritual um, satisfaction 
out of helping people get better instead of just prescribing pills and, uh, you know, and, and cutting it to people. No question. Right. And I guess this is what's driving um, maybe younger doctors. Yes, I'm seeing more of that for sure. Mm. And you see also older doctors doing the same thing or they are still more very much anchored into the old system? I do see more older physicians um, shifting paths. I think it is inherently more challenging beyond a certain point in your career to uh, kind of redefine the paradigm within which you, you, you see yourself and serve others. Uh, it's happening, but I think it can be a little more challenging uh, when you've been locked in for, for so long, but it's happening across the age continuum. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna tease you a little bit. Have you noticed that not everywhere, but it's been my observation that when you go to an hospital, you typically see the most unhealthy looking people working, <laughs> working in hospitals, whether it's doctors or nurses or people behind the counter. Have you, is it just my observation or? And I think there's some truth to that. I, I can tell you, and I'm very familiar with the the health metrics of our workforce, which is a large workforce, uh, is a pretty clear uh, reflection of what you see in the general public, and in some instances, even worse, uh, a lot of which is probably stress-related. Uh, yeah. These are stressful cultures to be working mm -hmm. in. So a lot of the work that I do is to care for the caregiver. Uh, and again, I think it's an important uh, avenue to be inspiring changes in the way that not only how they serve themselves, but how they serve others. It's a huge uh, challenge. I think it's also a huge opportunity. Mm. Right. Well, thank you for doing that. Okay, yes. Mark M. It's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> well, before I forget, um, Mark, where, where can people find out more information about, you know, all the things you've been talking about today and about you as a, you know, as a, as a doctor, as a person? Our website is the healthedgepodcast.com. Health, the healthedgepodcast, all one word, dot com. Uh, our podcast can be uh, uh, listened to, downloaded there. We have a wealth of information. Uh, certainly there, our podcast is available on iTunes and other, other outlets. And uh, that would be the one-stop place to get a lot of hopefully useful and, and value-add information. Excellent, excellent. I want to t take you back a little bit. I mean, you said you've been following um, a low-carb and more or less paleo diet for a number of years. Um, what have you found have been sort of the, the most striking results of following that, that type of diet? That's a great question. And there, and there are so many. Uh, while I was not trying to lose weight, I noticed a, a big difference in my body composition when I began to add that nutritional program with uh, 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 more resistance and, and aerobic activity, I saw a significant shift, uh, de mm -hmm. decreasing my body fat stores, increasing my lean body mass. And at the age of 60, soon to be 61, that is a critical direction to be moving in. I saw dramatic changes in many of my biomarkers, all of my lipid measures, drops in triglycerides, increases in my HDL, lowering of sugar and insulin levels, lowering of hemoglobin A1C, a biomarker of glycation. And for the men out there, over the last 10 years, I have seen a dramatic increase in my testosterone levels, which, I am, which I am convinced 
while there are many attributes, largely a consequence of eating more healthy fat sources, dropping unhealthy carbs from my life, and managing stress more effectively. Those have been profound. I've, I've never felt better. Uh, and while, while one never knows what the next day will bring, yeah. I, I do, I've noticed profound changes, and it's, it's been inspiring. Excellent. Is that, what, is that why they call it functional medicine, because you're very functional? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> now, maybe it's because you function better. What, are the two? <laughs> what a novel concept. Yeah, oh, it could be... We could, we could investigate that a bit more. Anyway, back to the script. Um, so you've, you've obviously s seen some profound physical benefits. What about mental benefits and emotional um, health as well? Has, has that been affected at all by your diet? It has as, as well. I would say that uh, I get less fatigue during the day. I, I seem to have more uh, energy, fewer peaks and troughs. Uh, cognitively, and you know, I, I work in, a, in an environment where you really have to stay sharp. Uh, I do find that um, uh, you know, I tend to be a little more creative, a little more innovative when I need to be, a little less frustrated while others are maybe you know banging their heads against the wall. Uh, and I and I do find that I have more emotional resilience. It's a very stressful hmm. environment. Uh, things tend to roll off me. Um, I, I take myself much less seriously as I once did. I have a lot more fun. Uh, all those aspects of my life have been dramatically improved. Excellent, excellent. Well, I know people are going to want something to take away today. So what would you say would be the three most effective things that someone can do um, in order to promote a better health for themselves? Yeah, and in, in the few minutes I have remaining, as I have another meeting to run mm. to, uh, gentlemen, I would say certainly number one, I, people have to start by loving themselves. Uh, I think self-love, self-compassion is, is an essential place to start in any journey of enlightenment and, and, and exploration. Uh, from a nutritional perspective, without question, uh, cutting the poor quality carbohydrates and embracing fats that historically we have thought to be unhealthy, I think are, I could not imagine a more profound nutritional intervention for anyone than mm -hmm. to at a low carb paleo lifestyle. And then I would say the third thing is to not to take oneself too seriously. I, I think we have to embrace life, enjoy life, see the humor in life and, uh, and, and just keep moving from one moment to the next. Super. Well, thank you for that. And in view of the fact that you have to rush off, Alan, I think we better go straight to the close. Uh, here we go. Thank you again, Mark, for being on the Local Paleo Show. And as we say in Texas, I will presente y'all. Thank you both. Great pleasure. No, it's thank been you for your time. You, Mark. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you very much. Thank you.